15. I'll throw in the way of many well-disposed young persons. He explains his system. By supposing that an unmarried lady and gentleman meet for the first time at a public ball, he is enchanted with the sylph-like grace of the lady in a waltz. She, fascinated with the superb black mustaches of the gentleman, mutual interest is created in their bosoms, and the gentleman signalizes, Do you perceive how much I am struck by your beauty? By twisting the tip of his right mustache with the finger and thumb of the corresponding hand, if the gentleman be unprovided with these foreign appendages, the right ear must be substituted. The lady replies by an affirmative signal, or the contrary, e.g., yes. The lady arranges her bouquet with the left hand. Remember, a similar operation with the right hand. Assuming the answer to have been favorable, the gentleman, by slowly throwing back his head, and gently drawing up his stock with the left hand, signals, how do you like this style of person? The lady must instantly lower her eyelids, and appear to count the sticks of her fan, which will express, immensely. The gentleman then thrusts the thumb of his left hand into the armhole of his waistcoat, taps three times carelessly with his fingers upon his chest. By this signal he means to say, how is your little heart? The lady plucks a leaf out of her bouquet, and flings it playfully over her left shoulder, meaning thereby to intimate that her vital organ is as free as that. The gentleman, encouraged by the last signal, clasps his hands, and by placing both his thumbs together, protests that heaven has formed them for each other, whereupon the lady must, and hesitatingly, touch the fourth finger of her left hand with the index finger of the right, by which emphatic signal she means to say, no nonsense, though, the gentleman instantly repels the idea, by expanding the palms of both hands, and elevating his eyebrows, this is the point at which he should make the most important signal in the code, it is done by inserting the finger and thumb of the right hand into the waistcoat pocket, and expresses, what metal do you carry, or, more popularly, what is the amount of your banker's account, the lady replies by tapping her fan on the back of her left hand, one distinct tap for every thousand pounds she possesses, if the number of taps be satisfactory to the gentleman, he must, by a deep inspiration, inflate his lungs so as to cause a visible heaving of his chest, and then, fixing his eyes upon the chandelier, slap his forehead with an expression of suicidal determination, this is a very difficult signal, which will require some practice to execute properly. It means, pity my sad state. If you refuse to love me, I'll blow my miserable brains out. The lady may, by shaking her head incredulously, express a reasonable doubt that the gentleman possesses any brains. After a few more preliminary signals, the lover comes to the point by dropping his gloves on the floor, thereby beseeching the lady to allow him to offer her his hand and fortune, to which she, by letting fall her handkerchief, replies, ask Papa and Mama. This is only an imperfect outline of the code which the inventor asserts may be introduced with wonderful advantage in the streets, the theaters, at churches, and descending chapels, and, in short, everywhere that the language of the lips cannot be used, labors of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, a day on the water, by way of excursion, a night at the playhouse, by way of diversion, a morning assemblage of elegant ladies, a chemical lecture on lemon and collies, a magnificent dinner the venison so tender lots of wine, broken glasses that's all I remember, if I'd easier only if I'd be peace, frgsmian, ass, adbd, science, fas plymouth, august 5th, a good reason, we had much pleasure in announcing to the liverymen and our fellow citizens, the important fact, that for the future, the Lord Mayor's Day will be the 5th instead of the 9th of November, 
The reason for this change is extremely obvious, as that is the principal day of the guy season. The members of the Carlton Club have been taking lessons in bell ringing. They can already perform some pleasing changes. Colonel Sithorp is quite au fait at a bog major, and Horace Twist hopes, by ringing appeal, to be appointed collector of tolls at Waterloo Bridge. We recommend Lord Cardigan to follow the example of the officers of Ghent, who have introduced umbrellas into the army, even on parade. Some men should gladly avail themselves of any opportunity of hiding their heads. Punches information for the people. Number 2. The Thermometer. General Description. The thermometer is an instrument for showing the temperature, for by it we can either see how fast a man's blood boils when he is in a passion, or, according as the seasons have occurred this year, how cold it is in summer, and how hot in winter, it is mostly cased in tin, all the brass being used up by certain lecturers, who are faced with the latter metal, it has also a glass tube, with a bulb at the end, exactly like a tobacco pipe, with the bowl closed up, except that, instead of tobacco, they put mercury into it, as the heat increases, the mercury expands, precisely as the smoke would in a pipe, if it were confined to the tube, a register is placed behind the tube, crossed by a series of horizontal lines, the whole resembling a wooden milk score when the customer is several weeks in arrear, derivation of name, the thermometer derives its name from two Greek words, signifying, measure of heat, a designation which has caused much warm discussion, for the instrument is also employed to tell when it freezes, by those persons who are too scientific to find out by the tips of their fingers and the blueness of their noses, history and literature of the thermometer, the origin of the instrument is involved in a depth of obscurity considerably below zero, Pliny mentions its use by a celebrated brewer of the OSHA, we have succeeded, after several years painful research, in tracing the invention of the instrument to Mercury, who, being the god of thieves, very likely stole it from somebody else, of ancient writers, there are few except Hannibal who used it on crossing the Alps and Julius Caesar, that notice it, Bacon treats of the instrument in his, Novum Organum, from which Newton cabbaged his ideas in his, Principia, in the most unprincipled manner, the thermometer remained stationary till the time of Robinson Crusoe, who clearly suggested, if he did not invent the register, now universally adopted, which so nearly resembles his mode of measuring time by means of notched sticks. Fahrenheit next took it in hand, and because his calculations were founded on a mistake, his scale is always adopted in England. Romer altered the system, and instead of giving the thermometer mercury, administered to it cold without, or spirits of wine diluted with water, Celsius followed, and advised a medium fluid, so that his thermometer is known as the centigrade. Delisle made such important improvements, that they have never been attended to, and Mr. Sex's differential thermometer has given rise to considerably more than a half dozen different opinions. All these persons have written learnedly on the subject, blowing respectively hot or cold, as their tastes vary. The most recent work is that by Professor Thompson a splendid octavo, hot-pressed, and just warm from the printers, though this writer disagrees with Romer's temperance principles, and uses the strongest spirit he can get, instead of mercury. We are assured that he is no relation whatever to Mesros, Thompson and Fearon of Holborn Hill. Concluding remarks and description of Punch's thermometer, it must be candidly acknowledged by every unprejudiced mind, that the thermometer question has been most shamefully handled by the scientific world. It is made an exclusive matter, they keep it all to themselves, they talk about Fahrenheit with the utmost coolness, of Romer in you an understandable jargon. 
and fire whole volleys of words concerning the centigrade scale, till one's head spins round with their inexplicable dissertations. What is the use of these interminable technicalities to the world at large? Do they enlighten the rheumatic as to how many coats they may put on? For the midsummer days of this variable climate, do their barometers tell us when to take an umbrella, or when to leave it at home? Member who, we further ask, knows how hot it is when the mercury stands at 120 degrees or how cold it is when opposite 32 degrees of Fahrenheit? Only the initiated, a class of persons that can generally stand fire like salamanders, or make themselves comfortable in an ice house. Deeply impressed with the importance of the subject, Punch has invented a new thermometer, which may be understood by the people whom he addresses the unlearned in caloric the ignorant of the principles of expansion and dilatation. Everybody can tell, without a thermometer, if it be a coat colder or a cotton waistcoat warmer than usual when he is out. But at home, ah, there's the rub. There it has been impossible to ascertain how to face the storm, or to turn one's back upon the sunshine, till today. Punch's thermometer decides the question, and here we give a diagram of it, allowing a stern and solemn duty to the public. Punch has indignantly spurned the offers of the British Association to join in their mummeries at Plymouth to appear at their dinners for the debasement of science. No, here in his own pages, and in them only, doth he propound his invention, but he is not exclusive, having published his wonderful invention. He invites the makers to copy his plan. Mr. Murphy is already busily arranging his almanac for 1842. By means of a punch thermometer, made by Carey and Company Punch's thermometer, the scale arranged according to Fahrenheit. Ice bath 110 cold bath 98 blood heat. Coat off 90 stock loose and 88 cuffs turned up 85 1 waistcoat 80 morning coat all day 75 1 coat 65 summer heat. Spencer 55 temperate. Ditto and, comfortable, 52 great coat 50 ditto, and Macintosh 45 ditto, ditto, and worsted stockings 43 ditto, 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 and double box coat and Guernsey's 35 ditto, 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 and bare skin coat 32 freezing, ditto, 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 ditto and between two feather beds all day zero zero, the speakership. The parliamentary Lucius and non Lucendo the speaker who never speaks the gentleman who always holds his own tongue, except when he wants others to hold there's the man who fills the chair, which is about three times too big for him is not, after all, to be changed, but the incoming tenants of office have resolved to take him as a fixture, though not at a fair valuation, for they do nothing but find fault all the time they are agreeing to let him remain on the premises, for our own part. We see no objection to the arrangement, for Mr. Lefevre, we believe, shakes his head as slowly and majestically as his predecessors, and rattles his teeth over the inardier, with as much dignity as Sutton, who was the very perfection of manners, was accustomed to throw into it. The fatigues of the office are enough to kill a horse, but asses are not easily exterminated. It is thought that Lefevre has not been sufficiently worked, and before giving him a pension, the receiver must as the chemists say, be quite exhausted, tiring him out will not be enough, but he must be tired again, to entitle him to a retiring allowance, an inquiry from Deathburg, Esquire dear sir, as I talks in your punch being in the line myself, mind yes, will you tell me what is the meaning of being, convalescent, a chap called me that name the other days, and I signed him as I does this, yours truly, Deathburg the mansion house parrot, 
There is something very amusing in witnessing the manner in which the little Jackson office imitate the great ones. Sir Peter Lorry has been doing the ludicrous by imitating his political idol. Sir Robert, I shan't prescribe till I am state doctor, says the baronet. I shan't decide, wait for the Lord Mayor, echoes the knight. Matrimonial Agency. Lord John Russell begs respectfully to inform the connubially disposed portion of the community, that being about to retire from the establishment in Downing Street, of which he has so long been a member, he has resolved at the suggestion of several single ladies about thirty, and of numerous juvenile gentlemen who have just attained their majority a second time to open a matrimonial agency office, where from his long and successful experience he trusts to be honored by the confidence of the single and the generous acknowledgments of the married, Lord J.R. intends to transact business upon the most liberal scale, and instead of charging a percentage on the amount of property concerned in each union, he will take every lady and gentleman's valuation of themselves, and consider one thousandth part thereof as an adequate compensation for his services. Ladies who have lost the registries of their birth can be supplied with new ones, for any year they please and the greatest care will be taken to make them accord with the early recollections of the ladies' schoolfellows and cousins of the same age. Gentlemen who wear wigs, false calves, or artificial teeth, or use hair dye, and see, will be required to state the same, as no deception can be countenanced by Lord J.R. Ladies are only required to certify as to the originality of their teeth, and as Lady Russell will attend exclusively to this department. No disclosure will take place until all other preliminaries are satisfactorily arranged. Young gentlemen with large mustaches and small incomes will find the matrimonial agency office well worthy their attention, and young ladies who play the piano, speak French, and measure only 18 inches round the waist, cannot better consult their own interests than by making an early application. N.B. None with red hair need apply, unless with a mother's certificate that it was always considered to be Auburn. Wanted several buxom widows for the commencement, if in weeds, will be preferred. Matters in fact, and matters in law. Law is the perfection of reason, said, some sixty years ago, an old powder with priest of the Mies, in his enthusiasm for the venerable lady, and what one of her learned adorers, from handsome Jot Campbell down to plain counselor Dunn, would dare question the maxim, a generous soul, who, like the fabled lady of the Arabian tale, drops gold at every word she utters, varying in value from one guinea to five thousand, according to the quality of the hand that is stretched forth to receive it, cannot possibly be other than reason herself, but to appreciate this dear creature justly, it is absolutely necessary to be in her service, no ordinary lay person can judge her according to her deserts, you must be initiated into her mysteries before you can detect her beauties but once admitted to her august presence once enrolled as her sworn slave your eyes become opened and clear, and you see her as she island the marvel of the world, yet, though so difficult of comprehension, no man, nor woman, nor child, must plead ignorance of her excellencies, to be ignorant of any one of them is an impossibility as palpable as that the queen can do no wrong, or any other admirable fiction which the genius of our ancestors has bequeathed us, we all must know the law or be continually whipped, a hard rule, though an inflexible one, but the schoolmaster is a broad punch, that teaches all, must teach the law, and, as a preliminary indispensable, he now proceeds to give a few definitions of the principal matters contained in that science, which bear a different meaning from what they would in ordinary language, 
the admiring neophyte will perceive with delight the vast superiority apparent in all cases of matters of law, or matters of fact, to illustrate, when a lovely girl, all warmth and confidence, steals on tiptoe from her lonely chamber, and, lighted by the moon, when, pause, asleep, drops from the balcony into the arms of some soft youth, as warm as she, who has been waiting to whisk her off to Hyman's altar that is generally understood as when an ugly, bum, well up to trap, creeps like a rascal from the sheriff's office, and with his capias armed, ere you are half-dressed, gives you the chase, and, as you, leg, away for the bare life, his knuckles dig into the seat of your unmentionables, gripping you like a tiger that indeed is an otter chose, that is when you remark around, rosy, jolly fellow, shining from top to toe, philandering, down Regent Street, with a self-satisfied grin, that seems to say, match me that, Dim, and casting looks of pity mellowed through his eyeglass on all passers, you may fairly conclude that that happy dog has just slipped into but when you perceive a gaunt, yellow specter of a man, reduced to his last chemise, and that a sad spectacle of ancient purity, starting from Lincoln's Inn, and making all haste for Waterloo Bridge, the inference is rather natural, that he is blessed with it being dangerous to take too great a meal at a time and punch knowing well the difficulty of digesting properly over large quantities of mental food, he concludes his first lecture on L.A.W. whether he will continue here his definitions of legal terms, or not. Time and his humor shall determine. Address rehearsal. Lord Melbourne, imitating the example of the ancient philosophers, is employing the last days of his political existence in composing a learned discourse on the shortness of ministerial life, to try the effect of it. His lordship gives a full-dressed inner party, immediately after the meeting of Parliament, to several of his friends, on the removal of the cloth. He will read the essay, and then the Queen's intended speech, in which she civilly gives his lordship leave to provide himself with another place, where, in the whole range of history, could we meet with a similar instance of magnanimity, where, with such a noble picture of a great soul rising superior to adversity, Seneca in the bath uttering moral apothems with his dying breath Socrates jesting over his bowl of hemlock juice were great creatures immense minds, but Lord Melbourne reading his own dismissal to his friends after dinner, too, over his first glass of wine leaves them at an immeasurable distance, oh, that we had the power of poor Wilkie, what a picture we could make of such a subject, the drama, Vauxhall Gardens, some of the melancholy duties of this life afford a more subdued, and, therefore, a more satisfactory pleasure than scores with which duty has nothing to do, or those of mere enjoyment, if, for instance, the friend, whose feeds we have helped to eat, whose cellars we have done our part to empty for the last quarter of a century, should happen to fall ill, if the doctors shake their heads, and warn us to make haste to his bedside, there is always a large proportion of honey to be extracted, in obeying the summons, out of the sting of parting, recounting old reminiscences, and gossiping about old times, never, alas, to a return, but should we neglect the summons, where would the stings of conscience end, impelled by such a sense of duty, we wended our way to the, royal property, to take a last look at the long expiring gardens, it was a wet night the lamps burnt dimly the military band played in the minor key the waiters stalked about with so silent, melancholy a tread, that we took their towels for pocket handkerchiefs, the concert in the open rain went off tamely dirge-like, in spite of the siege of Acre, which was described in a set of quadrilles, embellished with blue fire and maroons, and adorned with a dozen double drums, 
thump tap intervals, like death notes, in various parts of the doomed gardens, the divertisement was anything but diverting, when we reflect upon the impending fate of the rotunda, in which it was performed, no such damp was, however, thrown over the evolutions of Tukro's beautiful horses and equestrian artists, including the new grand entree, and cavalcade of Amazons, they had no sympathy with the decline and fall of the Simpsonian Empire, they were strangers, interlopers, called in like mutes and feathers, to grace the funeral show, to give a more graceful flourish to the final exit, the horses pawed the sawdust, evidently unconscious that the earth it covered would soon be let on lease for building ground, the riders seemed in the heyday of their equestrian triumph, let them, however, derive from the fate of Vauxhall, a deep, a fearful lesson, though we shudder as we write, it shall not be said that destruction came upon them unawares that no warning voice had been raised that even the squeak of punch was silent, let them not sneer, and call us superstitious we do not give credence to supernatural agency as a fixed and general principle, but we did believe in Simpson, and stake our professional reputation upon Whittacombe, that Vauxhall Gardens were under the especial protection of, that they drew the very breath of their attractiveness from, the ceremonial Simpson, who can deny, when he flitted from walk to walk, from box to box, and welcomed everybody to the royal property, right royally did things go on, who would then have dreamt that the illustrious George V of the Piazza would ever be honored with instructions to sell, that his eulogistic pen would be employed in giving the puff superlative to the Elysian haunts of quantum fashion in other words, in painting the lily, gilding refined gold, but, alas, Simpson, the tutelar deity, has departed, died, some say, but we don't believe it, and at the moment he made his last bow, Vauxhall ought to have closed, it was madness the madness which will call us, peradventure, superstitious which kept the gates open when Simpson's career closed it was an anomaly, for like love and heaven, Simpson was Vauxhall, and Vauxhall was Simpson, let Dutro reflect upon these things we dare not speak out but a tutelar being watches over, and give that vitality to his arena his ring island he may rely upon it, a fairy one while that mysterious being dances and prances in it, all will go well, his horses will not stumble, never will his clowns forget a syllable of their antiquated jokes, oh, let him then, while seriously reflecting upon Simpson and the fate of Vauxhall, give good heed unto the Methuselah, who hath already passed his second centenary in the circle, these were our awful reflections while viewing the scenes in the circle, very properly constructed in the rotunda, they overpowered us we dared not stay to see the fireworks, in the midst of which Signora Rossini was to make her terrific ascent and descent on a rope 300 feet high, she might have been the sprite of Madame Sakai, in fact, the Vauxhall papers, published in the gardens, put forth the legend, which favors such a dreadful supposition, we refer our readers to them they are only sixpence apiece, of course the gardens were full in spite of the weather, for what must be the callousness of that man who could let the gardens pass under the hammer of George Robbins, without bidding them an affecting farewell, good gracious, we can hardly believe such insensibility does exist, hasten then, dear readers, as you would fly to catch the expiring sigh of a fine old boon companion hasten to take your parting slice of ham, your last bowl of arrack, even now while the great auctioneer says, going, for your sake, and yours only, Alfred Dunn whose disinterestedness has passed into a theatrical proverb, arrests the arm of his friend of the auction mart in its descent, attend to his bidding, do not oh, do not wait till the Vulcan of the Bartholomew Elaine Smithy lets fall his hammer upon the anvil of pleasure, 
to announce that the royal property is gone. A lady and gentleman in a peculiarly perplexing predicament. Mrs. Whalen and Mr. Keeley were the lady and gentleman who were placed in the peculiarly perplexing predicament of making a second-hand French interlude supportable to an English opera audience. In this they more than succeeded for they caused it to be amusing, they made the most of what they had to do, which was not much, and of what they had to say, which was a great deal too much, for the piece would be far more tolerable if considerably shorn of its unfair proportions. The translator seems to have followed the verbose text of his original with minute fidelity, except where the idioms bothered him, and although the bills declare it is adapted by Mr. Charles Selby to the English stage, the thing is as essentially French as it is when performed at the Palais Royal, except where the French language is introduced, when, in every instance, the labors of correct transcription were evidently above the powers of the translator. The best part of the adaptation is the exact fitness of the performers to their parts, we mean as far as concerns their personnel. Of course, all the readers of Punch know Mr. Keeley. Let them, then, conceive him an uncle at five and thirty, but docking himself of six years' age when asked impertinent questions. He has a head of fine auburn hair, and dresses in a style that a dog would call, quiet, that is to say, he wears brass buttons to his coat, which is green, and adorned with a velvet collar. In short, it is not nearly so fine as Lord Palmerston's for it has no velvet at the cuffs, and is not embroidered, add white and hintables, and you have an imaginative portrait of the hero, but the heroine, ah, she, dear reader, if you have a taste for full-blown beauty and widows, she will coax the coin out of your pockets, and yourselves into the English opera house, when we have told you what she acts, and how she acts, imagine her, the siren, with the quiet, confiding smile, the tender melting voice, the pleasing highly bred manner, just picture her in the character of a Parisian widow the free, and shackled, fascinating Parisian widow the child of liberty the mother of Mumber not a mother, for the instant a husband dies, the orphans are transferred to convent schools to become nephews and nieces, well, we say for the third time, conceive Mrs. Waylett, dressed with modest elegance, a single rose in her hair sympathize with her as she rushes upon the stage which is set for the chambray mublay of a country inn, escaping from the persecutions of a persevering traveler who will follow her charms, her modest elegance, her single rose, wherever they make their appearance, she locks the door, and orders supper, declaring she will leave the house immediately after it is eaten and paid for, alas, the danger increases, and with it her fears, she will pay without eating, and as the diligence is going off, she will resume her journey, but a new misfortune there is no place in it, she will, then, hire a post chaise, and the landlady goes to strike the bargain, having been duly paid for a bed which has not been lain in and a supper that has not been eaten, as the lady hastens away, with every prospect of not returning, the piece would inevitably end here, if a gentleman did not arrive by the very diligence which has just driven off full, and taken the same chamber the lady has just vacated, but more particularly if the only chaise in the place had not been hired by the lady's wicked persecutor on purpose to detain her. She, of course, returns to the twice-led chamber, and finds it occupied by a sentimental traveler. Here we have the peculiarly perplexing predicament, a lady and gentleman, and only one chamber between them. This is the plot, all that happens afterwards is nearly supplementary. To avoid the continued persecutions of the unseen Adolphi, the lady agrees, after some becoming hesitation, to pass to the hostess as the wife of the sentimental traveler. 
the landlady is satisfied, for what's so natural as that they should have but one bedroom between them, so she carefully locks them in and the audience have the pleasure of seeing them pass the night together how we will not say let our readers go and see, yet we must in justice add that the lady and gentleman make at the end of the piece the amend good morals demand they get married, to the performers, and to them alone, are we indebted for any of the amusement this trifle affords, Mr. Keeley and Mrs. Waylett were, so far as acting goes, perfection, for never were parts better fitted to them. There are only three characters in the piece, the third, the hostess of the Caution Blade, is very well done by Mrs. Selby. The persecuting Adolphe who turns out to be the gentleman's nephew never appears upon the stage, for all his rude efforts to get into the ladies' chamber are fruitless, such is the prying disposition of the British public that the house was crammed to the ceiling to see a lady and a gentleman placed in a peculiarly perplexing predicament, as Romeo, keen, with awkward grace, on velvet rests, he said, ah, did he seek a softer place, he'd rest upon his head, latest for him, several Dutch males arrived from Rotterdam during the last week, they are all totally devoid of intelligence or interest, and full ally, crack China mended, zounds, man, off this minute there's work for you, or else the deuce is in it, draw it mild, as the boy with the decayed tooth said to the dentist, Webster's manganese ink is so intensely black, that it is used as a marking fluid for coal sacks, there is a man up country so fat, they grease the cart wheels with his sh,